Today's reading is taken from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, thanks for reading that, and it's um, great to be back with you. I've been with you over the last couple of weeks, and if I've not had the chance to meet you, my name's Pete Nicholas. I'm one of the ministers in charge at uh, Inspire St. James Clerkenwell, just across in Farringdon. And um, as we look at this um, passage, the key verse for us, really, is there in verse 10 over the page where Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And we've called this um, this sermon Authority That Forgives. Now, one of the reasons, I suppose, we want authority is that when we have authority, when we have power, we can effect change. And so it's one of the reasons we want authority in our own lives. I've got um, two small boys, and often I feel like I lack the authority to effect the change in their lives that I would like to. Whether it's on a trivial level um, within families or whether it's on a much more significant level, I'm not, of course, unaware of the significance of today and the mandate that has been given by the people of this country for MPs to vote on such a significant matter. And the reason that that authority matters so much is because of the results it will have, what change will be or won't be affected. That's, of course, right at the heart of what this has really been all about. Yes, I say, if you want authorities to effect change, but that really begs the question, what are you seeking to change? 
And that just pushes the question one further back, which is, what do you think is wrong with the world? What do you want to make right? It is worth thinking about, isn't it? If you had all the authority that you really desired, what change would you want to see? I mean, our culture, of course, is very aware of the big picture problems in the world, whether climate change, with our very um, diverse weather systems we've experienced in February, from balmy summer conditions to these kind of hurricane conditions, you know, it's difficult not to be confronted by the reality that something is up with the environment. Or whether it's when you see someone walking down the street and they have four or five charity wristbands, you know, advertising the different things that they are passionate about. The desire to affect change is a huge cultural phenomenon. But what is the change that we want to affect? And that pushes us back to the question, what is wrong with the world? What needs fixing? And what is remarkable about this instant is that this really gets right to the heart of what Jesus thinks is wrong with the world. Because he's faced with someone who has very obvious, huge needs. And yet, as we will see as we engage with the story, he doesn't give the response we would expect, and he doesn't necessarily act the way we might expect as well. Um, given that the, uh, the kind of bit that he says afterwards is about um, healing people and about, you know, it's not the um, healthy who need a doctor but those who are sick, I've um, structured this around a medical theme. It appeals to me because my wife's a doctor, as I've mentioned. And so I've called the first um, point the diagnosis and the second point the cure. So that's where we go, the diagnosis and the cure. So it should be pretty straightforward. Let's look first of all at the diagnosis and come with me as we enter into these events and imagine what it would be like to be there. So Jesus entered this place called Capernaum, quite a diverse town, and many people have clearly heard about the miracles that he's been doing and the authoritative teaching which he has demonstrated time and again, and so a huge crowd has gathered. Such a large crowd, we're told, verse 2, that there's no room left, not even for those who are kind of crowding in at the door and looking through the windows and trying to see what's going on. And then verse 3, we get some men, pretty generic, come bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Now they can't get in, clearly, but they're desperate, and you can understand why when they've got a friend who is paralyzed. They're desperate to try to get him in front of Jesus. And the reason is obvious, they want him to be healed. What is not to understand about that? He is paralyzed. I mean, that would be awful in any day and age. It's terrible today, loss of form and function, plague the human condition. We try to restore those if we possibly can. But this man has been paralyzed, and really it's a remarkable, it's a miracle that he is alive. Because a paralyzed person in a traditional society would often be considered as a drain on the community resources. So it's probably because he's got good friends and a firm family around him that they've been able to keep this man alive. But this really is last chance saloon for him, the opportunity to be healed by Jesus. But they can't get in. Now imagine what this, would, what this, um, what this results in them doing. Middle Eastern houses, as you might know, have flat roofs and normally kind of steps up to the top of the, the roof where they would hang out things like laundry and things like that or do clothes dying. So they take those steps up on top of the roof and now they're trying to get in another way. But even notwithstanding that this wasn't a house built out of bricks and mortar, it's pretty audacious, isn't it, to break a hole in the roof. And it wouldn't be something that's done quickly. So imagine you're inside the room and you hear this scratching about upstairs and you start to look up and then bits of debris start to fall down. How long do you think it realistically is for four men working with kind of mottle and daub type material to make a big enough hole to lower down a man in it. I mean, we're not talking a few minutes, are we? We're talking probably 5, 10, 15 minutes or so of just absolute pandemonium. Probably the owner of the house shouting at them, but they keep going at it. The point is, is that by the time the man is lowered down, 
into the room in front of Jesus and the crowd. No one else is thinking about anything or anyone else. All eyes are on this man, his friends and what the mess they've made, and Jesus and how he's going to respond. And Jesus says something utterly remarkable. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus is clearly not missing the point. He never misses the point. He's obviously making a point. What is the point he's making? Well, think of it like this. Imagine a different scene. Imagine an emergency room. Someone comes in, um, wheeled in on the emergency room, and they're screaming out in pain. And as the doctor comes to examine them, they say, my arm, my arm is broken. Help my arm, it's in such pain. A good doctor will not just respond to the cries of the patient. They will, of course, take them into consideration. But a good doctor has to do what's called a primary and secondary survey to survey the whole person. And imagine that doctor does that primary secondary survey and says, my friend, I know your arm's hurting. We'll get to that, but your arm is not the most serious thing. That's not going to kill you. The fluid that's flushing into your diaphragm at the moment that is going to stop you breathing when your lungs collapse in a few minutes, that is the priority. That's what we're going to deal with first. We'll come to your arm, but we need to deal with that first. You see, a doctor will not listen just to the cries of the patient. The doctor will perform the diagnosis. And Jesus is like a great physician here. He's saying, my friend, I see the paralysis. It's obvious. I'm aware there is a huge felt need in your life. It is not insignificant. It's not escaped my notice. But there is something more important that we've got to deal with. And like a good physician, he says, this will kill you. So we must deal with it first. It is the primary need. And so whilst everyone else in the room gasps, Jesus is focused Now just think for a moment and pause and engage with, whether you're a Christian or not, just try to engage with what this tells us about what Jesus calls sin. Verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. What does this tell us about sin? He is not at all trivialising the man's condition. We've got to be clear about that. He is rather elevating the importance of sin. Because if he, with all wisdom, all authority, all love, says that's what I've got to fix... He's saying it must be more significant than even something as awful as paralysis. Well, let's ask, why is sin worse than even paralysis? Well, first of all, let's consider the nature of sin. This paralysis only affects the man's limbs, but sin affects the whole person, everything about the person. Sin, let me be clear now, sin is that condition of human beings that means that because we reject God, every aspect of our lives is flawed. Every aspect of our lives is not as it should be, is distorted from its original purpose, which is to live for God and to live in relationship with with God. And every aspect of our lives, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, our social dynamics, our relational dynamics, our spiritual dynamics, our psychological dynamics, all of those aspects of the human condition are distorted from their original purpose because of that one great mistake, that one great error of turning from God. Now, we know this intuitively, that this is the most important problem in the human condition. I mean, just think, if Jesus healed this man and only healed this man but didn't forgive his sins, would this man walk forth in life and be happy ever after? Oh, he'd no doubt have unbelievable joy, as he does have when he's healed. How long does that realistically last? You get all the conditions you want in life, all the circumstances you crave in life. How many people who get those are really happy? Have you not found it the greatest paradox that you can have all of the conditions you want in life, be on the most idyllic holiday with the people you love the most in the world, 
And is it always happy? You know, there's a problem with inside us. When we get our dreams, we destroy our dreams. We distort and pervert our dreams, such is the human condition. In the Western world, we have made advances that dwarf everything by comparison of what we expected we would have made over the last 30 or 40 years. And has the bottom line in the West been that we are more happy, more content than ever before? No, you know the stats. You see, the problem is not external circumstances. It's not even something as serious as paralysis. The problem is with inside us because sin is that total condition that affects every part of us. That is the nature of sin. And if Jesus does not deal with that, there is no happily ever after for any of us, not least for this man. The second thing is with the consequences of sin, because paralysis profoundly affects your quality of life, but if I can put it as bluntly as this, sin will take your life. Um, as a vicar, I, of course, get to do quite a few funerals. It's not my favourite part of the job, but it's a hugely important and significant part of the job. And I get to know the undertakers. <clears throat> There's one particular undertaker who always says goodbye in the same way each time. He says, see you next time. What a thing for an undertaker to say. But, of course, he knows the reality. Everyone dies. And the reason that we rage against the dying of the light is we know it shouldn't be this way. We don't drift quietly into the night. We rage against it. Everything about it is wrong. It shouldn't be that our dreams should be dashed on the rocks of death. It shouldn't be that our family is wrenched away from us from a death. We know this. The poets have eulogized about it. The philosophers have thought about it. We know it. Well, paralysis will profoundly affect the quality of this man's life, but sin will take his life because the Bible clearly teaches the wages of sin is death. As Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It's not the way it should be. God didn't want death in his world. It is the just consequences of when we turn away from the person who is perfectly good and perfectly life-giving. If we turn away from he who is life-giving, we find death. And that is why Jesus says, because of the nature of sin and the consequence of sin, I've got to deal with your sin. With great compassion, he says, he's going to deal with it. That's the diagnosis. Well, let's then look secondly at the cure. This man gets the disease of his sin cured and he gets his paralysis healed as well. So therefore, he must be a paradigm for us to look at in terms of how this happens. So how does he get cured? Well, the first thing is he does the best decision he's ever made. He comes to Jesus. I mean, we can make this too sophisticated. It really is pretty simple, but it's so profound. He comes to Jesus. He doesn't come with it all sewn up. He doesn't come with the diagnosis already in place. Can I just say that one of the great problems of the internet is that doctors are constantly having to compete with patients who've done a bit of Google Analytics on what their condition is. And so they think they know something because they've read some poxy blog article. They don't have a Scooby-Doo. It takes seven years of medical training to even get to being a foundation year doctor, let alone a GP or a proper, you know, a proper doctor fully practicing. And yet, we often think we need to come to Jesus with our diagnosis already intact, as though we've done a bit of Google Analytics and this is what's wrong with me. That is ludicrous. If we don't approach doctors that way, if we go to a doctor and say, you tell me what's wrong, you're the expert, how much more would the king of the universe, the one who made us, the one who knows everything about us, we don't need to come to him and say, I'm going to define my needs. The only proper response is just to come to him and say, you define my needs. I don't know what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? And God is not proud. People come to Jesus for all kinds of awful reasons. 
And he doesn't say, no, come back when you've got the diagnosis stacked up. He just says, well done, you came to me. That was the best move you ever made. Now listen to my diagnosis. In the pride of our hearts, we like to think that we have to come with everything sewn up, particularly if we've been well-educated, because that's how life works, not with Jesus. You come to him in mess, you come to him with your questions, you come to him when you haven't got it all figured out, just come to him. I wonder, what is stopping you come to him? Maybe you're someone who follows Christ and you're saying, well, you don't know what I've done this week, I can't come to him, <laughs> my friend. That's exactly when you need to come to him. He didn't come for the healthy, did he? He came for the sick, and if you're feeling your sickness more acutely, that's the best time to come to him. Maybe you're saying, I have lots of questions. Brilliant that you're here. Keep asking the questions. But the disposition of your heart as you ask those questions needs to be an openness of coming to him to ask them. So come to him, first of all. Secondly, listen to Jesus. Many people do come to Jesus, but when they hear the diagnosis, they turn away because they won't listen. I mean, it is very striking, isn't it? In our instant after the healing of the paralytic, the response that we get. Look at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's, the tax collector's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That message there has been an affront to human pride for as long as the gospel has been around. We do not like being told that we are not healthy, spiritually speaking. We love to be told that you have the power within yourself. I watched Captain Marvel the um, other day for my sins. It was a good bit of escapism. Hardly the most profound bit of um, cinema there's ever been, but there was a message for our time in it. The key moment without giving the punchline away is when Captain Marvel realizes she has the power within herself. Oh, how very liberating, except it's not. It's not liberating because when you realize you're stuffing up your life, to be told it's all down to you, merely piles pressure upon pressure. I live on a council estate with many people who know they can't pull themselves out of their problems. Saying it's all down to you merely leaves them in their own despair. That is not a liberating message. But for those who think they are healthy, they don't like it. The Duchess of Buckingham once responded to an invitation from Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, to come and hear the great evangelist George Whitfield speak. And this is how she responded in her polite but rather terse letter. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Isn't it the same today? People love the idea of Jesus the healer, but Jesus the forgiver. Don't tell me I need forgiveness. How dare you? And yet, as Malcolm Muggeridge said, the depravity of human beings is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. Look around, read the news, look at our communities. Do you really doubt the diagnosis? Succumb to Jesus. Listen to Jesus, whatever the disposition of your heart. And finally, accept Jesus' forgiveness. For all that the Pharisees resist Jesus, they do get the significance of his claim. Come back with me and look at verses 5 to 7. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so right they are. Jesus is making the claim that he is the only one who can forgive sins because he is the only one who is wronged by sin. By implication, he's making himself the moral center of the universe. It is a blasphemous claim, unless, of course, he is the moral center of the universe. Unless, of course, every wrongdoing in the universe in the final analysis has been against him. If that is the case, then he's merely speaking truth. And how do we know? Well, because he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, get up. And he does what only the moral center of the universe, God himself, can do. He heals the man with no physio, no build-up, no operation, just a word. How can he do that? Well, in one sense, of course, you would say it's easy for God to do that. But in another sense, it's not easy for God to heal and God to forgive. Let me close by the riddle in verse 9, which has got many people thinking over the years. He says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Now, which is easier? Well, on one level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because it's invisible. You can't tell if someone's sins are forgiven initially. Whereas you can tell if I say, get up and walk, to a paralyzed person, whether that happens or not. But which is easier to do? It might be easier to say your sins are forgiven, which is easier to do. The truth that scripture wants us to grasp, as I close, is that it is not easy to forgive sins. Sometimes people say, why can't God just forgive? The person who speaks like that has never had to forgive anyone something really significant. There is no such thing as just forgiveness. When we have to forgive someone, we either make them pay or we pay. Someone smashes my car window, if I forgive them, I have to pay for its repair. If I want justice, I make them pay for the repair. How much more true on an emotional level? If someone really wrongs you, you can either exact your vengeance and make them pay, or you can forgive them, but then you pay as you deal with the hurt yourself. On the cross, Jesus says, I will pay. I will pay for your sins, so my friend, you might be forgiven. And so he did, he paid in death, and blood, so that we might be liberated and set free. So no, it was not easy to either do or say your sins are forgiven. But it is true, and the wonderful choice is that if we trust in Jesus, if we will come to him, listen to him, and accept his diagnosis and cure, then our sins can be forgiven too. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, on this significant day when so much seems to rest on the authority um, in this institution around us, Lord God. We do need to have our priorities maybe recalibrated, that with all of the significance of the events that are happening, there is something even still more significant for us to have our sins forgiven and to be reconciled to the God who made us. We praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, died on the cross that we might be forgiven. And has given us scripture as a reassurance that we might know that we are forgiven if we trust in him. Help us to believe this and to live in the light of this, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.